right. Well, thank you to Kaylin for reading uh, and to Adriana for leading us in prayer. Uh, as you know, I am not Pastor Paul. Um, but yeah, so for everyone out there, I'm Mark, just so you know. Um, but that was that was my fault. When I asked her to pray, I didn't specify that I was going to be preaching. So. Um, all right, just one, one other thing, just by way of announcement before I get started. Uh, because, uh, because Pastor Paul is not here this morning, we're not going to be doing communion after the service like we normally would. Um, I, I think we will still have time for a Q&A, so if you have questions, then by all means, you can text them in to me or email them in to me, or you can ask me at the end of the service, um, or at the end of the sermon, rather. But, uh, yeah, so I, when I'm done preaching, uh, I'll do a Q&A, then the worship team come up, we'll do our final song, uh, just so you know what to expect. All right, we are continuing our sermon series, uh, tracing the story of the gospel throughout the Bible, Um, and this week we arrive at a very significant event in that story. We arrive at the Pentecost, which is, uh, in many ways, the birth of the church as we know it, right? The the gift of the Holy Spirit arrives and fills the disciples, um, and as it does, he signals the start of the new and final era of God's great rescue mission, the church age. All right, and I often, uh, often feel like we don't get to talk about the Holy Spirit often enough. And so it's kind of nice to have back-to-back sermons on the Holy Spirit uh, for a change. And you'll remember, uh, those of you who were here last week anyway, uh, that last week Pastor Paul preached on uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in us as individuals, right? Uh, convicting, uh, testifying, impressing the truths of Scripture into each of our hearts. Um, And this week, uh, we are going to consider the corporate implications of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the people of God. And for that reason, um, it's necessarily kind of a sermon for the church. Um, But if you are not uh, a Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus, um, and you're just, you happen to be here because you're curious about what this is all about, uh, this is the sermon about what the church is all about, and so I think it's, it's still relevant and worth hearing. Um, but that's my disclaimer up front. All right. <laughs> In our text today, we see that the Holy Spirit is the power of the mission of the church universal. Right? God's great global rescue mission. Being carried forward by His Holy Spirit-empowered people. And while the specifics of the events of Pentecost are not repeatable or replicable, uh, they have profound implications for uh, the people of God today. And so uh, my plan this morning is just to walk through this event with you um, and unpack some of the details along the way. And then hopefully uh, I hope to arrive at sort of explaining some of what this means for us and what to do with it. All right, so let's dive into the text. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. All right, so this verse orients us to the context of these events. All right, we find ourselves in Jerusalem on Pentecost. And Pentecost 
Well, Christians, we tend to think of it as like, we think of this event when we think of Pentecost. We think of it as this one-time thing that we call Pentecost. But Pentecost was a Jewish feast day uh, that they had observed for a very, very long time. Um, and it happened every year. Um, and it, it was the beginning of the Jewish Feast of Weeks, right, which took place seven weeks or 50 days, which is where it gets its name from, right, the Greek Penta. Uh, so 50 days after Passover. And it's a religious festival meant to mark the, uh, meant to mark the first crop harvests of the year. So it's the beginning of the gathering season. And if you think that the church's mission uh, being launched on the first day of the gathering season isn't significant, um, given all of the agricultural metaphors for mission in Jesus' teaching, you've not been listening closely. (laughs) Um, Do you remember what uh, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 9? Right? Famously, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And that is what is happening here in our text today. This is the sending of the laborers into the harvest to begin the gathering. All right, back to verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, Right? So who are they? Who are these people who are all gathered together in one place? Well, uh, thankfully, we have Acts 1 to provide some context for us. And in verse 15 of chapter 1, uh, we read that the remaining followers of Jesus, at least in Jerusalem at this time, uh, were about 120 all together, disciples and apostles, followers of Jesus, 120 total. Think about that for a minute. Just... Two months prior to this event is Palm Sunday when Jesus first comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Right? And as Luke describes those events in chapter 19 of his gospel, he describes this great multitude of people, this, this huge crowd of disciples following Jesus, hanging on his every word. And the, the religious authorities were scared to make any sort of a move against Jesus because of this massive crowd of people that were of, of his followers that were constantly surrounding him. And now here, two months later, there's 120 left. And if this tells us nothing more, um, I think it tells us that the mission of the church left purely up to human resolve and determination uh, would never have made it out of Jerusalem. All right. So we have 120 believers in Jesus gathered in this place. What are they doing? Uh, Verse 2 tells us that they are sitting in a room, right? And the reason for this is that less than a week prior, Jesus, right before his ascension, had said to them, and this also from Acts 1, verse 4 and 5, he told them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John the Baptist, or sorry, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, so that's what, they're, that's what they're doing here. They are holed up in a building somewhere waiting for the promised baptism of the Holy Spirit to arrive. And I don't want to make the, uh, give the impression that they're just sitting around doing nothing or sitting on their hands, rather, because Acts 1 also tells us that they were uh, in one accord devoting themselves to prayer. Okay, so 
So this isn't passive waiting. This is expectant waiting. This is prayerful waiting. This is, uh, they're preparing themselves for what's to come because they knew what the mission was already, right? Jesus had made that very clear. They knew that they had been commissioned with the preaching of the gospel, first in Jerusalem, then in all Judea and Samaria, and then finally to the ends of the earth. So they knew what they had been called to do, but they had been told to wait. They were waiting for their green light, right? They're like runners, crouched at the starting blocks, waiting for the sound of the gun to go off. But imagine yourselves in their shoes. What would you have imagined the baptism of the Holy Spirit was going to look or sound or feel like? What would you have been expecting? Right? I don't think that they would have had any better of an idea what to expect than we would, frankly. Um, but suddenly, in the middle of this multi-day prayer meeting, some unmistakable things begin to happen. Right In verse 2 we see, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as the fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, so we see three major signs that the Holy Spirit has arrived on the scene here. And the first two are, are audible and visual cues. And the third is, actu- is the actual gifting of empowerment for gospel ministry, Right? So we'll start with the, the, the first two. So first we have this mighty rushing wind, or the sound of this mighty rushing wind, right? And we have this, uh, what appears to be tongues of fire resting on each of them. Um, okay, what do we do? What do we make of these signs? Um, first, the language that, that Luke uses, that I just clarified, right? A sound, something that sounded like um, a rushing, a mighty rushing wind, right? Something that looked like or appeared like tongues of fire. It seems to be the language of someone uh, trying their best to describe an indescribable supernatural phenomenon. Right? They've never seen anything like this before. Um, and, it, and it makes sense that he chooses those images because uh, throughout all of Jewish history, God has been associated with both wind and fire. And so let's take a look at some of those uh, associations. And we'll start with the wind. Um, it's interesting that in both Hebrew and Greek, the word for wind is also translated as breath. All right? They're interchangeable um, based on context. Okay. Think back to the Garden of Eden where God creates Adam, right? In Genesis 2, we have this moment there where it says that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Right? And the man became a living creature. Or um, maybe even more, uh, perhaps even more tightly connected, uh, consider the story of uh, Ezekiel's vision in the Valley of the Dry Bones. Right? In uh, Ezekiel 37, the Lord commands Ezekiel to prophesy to an entire valley of scattered, dried out human bones. And he's to say this. He's to say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. And this whole army comes to life right in front of him. Right? And then God tells Ezekiel that this 
army, this, this group of people, this is the remnants of his people who he is going to resurrect out of the ash heap that was Israel. And then he prophesies to this army. He says this, this is uh, Ezekiel 37 verse 14. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. This very prophecy in Ezekiel 37 is coming true in this chapter at the moment of Pentecost. All right, God is breathing the spirit of life into his people. He's resurrecting them from the ashes in power. This is the birth of the church, right? So throughout this entire sermon series, we've been tracing how God has been working out his great rescue plan uh, throughout all of history uh, since the beginning of time, right? But you can kind of divide it up into these different stages. So you have this, um, the old covenant era that's chronicled in the Old Testament. It's kind of like a long pregnancy in a sense, right? And then when Jesus uh, incarnates, God becomes man, enters the world, it signals, you know, the time is here, it has come, right? The time is now. And in a sense, Jesus' earthly ministry is like a, a period of labor, right? And He's training and he's raising up disciples and apostles who are going to lead the church into this new and final era. And then, right before Jesus leaves and returns to heaven, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. Then, at Pentecost, in our chapter here today, we see the church draw its first breath as it wakes up to the world like a newborn infant. Right? Like God breathing life into Adam or into this valley of dry bones, right? The Spirit of God rushes into the believers. Interestingly enough, again, both the Hebrew and the Greek words for wind and breath share their root with the word for spirit, right? So the Spirit is the essence of life. It animates and it empowers that which is otherwise lifeless. And commenting on this passage, John Stott said this. He said, as a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. Okay. So that deals with the wind. Now onto the fire. And this one's a little bit, uh, a little bit more obvious, so it'll be a little more brief. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, all throughout Scripture, uh, God is associated with both wind and fire. Now, when Moses, uh, when God first spoke to Moses, right, he came in the form of a burning bush. And then when he uh, made this uh, covenant, rather, or prior to this, when he made his covenant with Abraham, he passed through the halved animals of the sacrifice, right, as a fiery smoking cauldron. And then and he, when he leads his people out of Egypt at the Exodus and across the Red Sea and through the desert, camped at Sinai, he did so at least at night as this massive pillar of fire, right? And so the, the fire always throughout Scripture represents the presence of the Almighty God. Wind and fire, right? So the wind is most closely associated with God's life-giving power and the fire is most closely associated with his presence, okay? And together, 
these facts point to the fact that the Holy Spirit's arrival involves both of these things, right? The supernatural power and the immediate presence of God himself with and in his people. All right. Back to verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, did you catch that? Not the part about tongues, right? But rather, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, somehow, I spent most of my life thinking, I knew this story since I was a child, right? And I spent most of my life thinking that only the apostles were specially empowered by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You know, and it doesn't help that this book is often misnamed the Acts of the Apostles, right? When it's actually a collection of stories uh, about the acts of the Holy Spirit through a ton of different people. Yes, uh, much of the book is dedicated to Paul's three missionary journeys, and and Peter gets a a fair bit of press too, right? And the rest of chapter 2 is a big sermon that Peter gives. It's a very famous sermon. But the rest of the book, in between all of those things, is these incredible stories of uh, nameless Christians boldly proclaiming the gospel as they go about their daily lives. And especially in the first few chapters after this one, right? There's, it, we just read story after story of these uh, converts from Jerusalem heading back home to all of their various places, carrying the gospel with them and spreading it as they went. All right, so the whole assembly receives the Holy Spirit. All the believers gathered there. And um, in chapter 1, when this gathering of 120 people is described, we see there that that includes Jesus' mother Mary, his brothers, and a whole bunch of uh, unnamed men and women. Right, And all were filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, the mission of the church is not simply for the leaders of the church. It's for all believers to participate in. Each of us has been given the Holy Spirit and gifted accordingly for the building up of the body and for evangelism. Do not miss that point. All right? And I'm going to circle back on it to make sure later. But first, um, one more interesting thing about these first two signs um, of the Spirit's arrival is that you know, it seems as though this sound of the mighty uh, rushing wind and this appearance of the tongues of fire was only for the benefit of the people in that room, right? We see very clearly that the speaking to other languages, that spills out into the streets and plays a very significant role. Um, but we don't hear any other mention of these miraculous signs. And... Um, yeah, I guess it goes back to my earlier question, right? What would, you have, what would you have expected the baptism of the Holy Spirit to look like? You know, we've established that God's power and presence are awesomely and obviously displayed in wind and fire, right? But God is also present in the stillness and quiet of the Sinai wilderness when he revealed himself to Elijah. So why was all the drama and ruckus necessary, I guess, is my question. And John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says this. He says, the gifts had to be visible to stir up the disciples through the bodily senses. 
For such is our dullness in appreciating the gifts of God that unless he first aroused all our senses, his power would pass us by and vanish unrecognized. So Calvin is saying that by our nature, we are so spiritually dulled. We are so out of tune with who God is and what he's about in the world that his very power and presence can be all around us and we just go on about our day as though that doesn't change everything. And I know that may uh, sound harsh, but you know it's true. And I know I'm not, uh, I'm not the only one. I'm not alone in this, I guess. Um, right? So many times I am frustrated with myself by feeling spiritually flatlined when um, encountering God in his word. Right? We talk, we talk about the Lord of hosts, right? This mighty God of Israel and the King of kings, right? The God of the universe, we encounter him as he reveals himself in his word, tells of all these incredible mind-bending things that he has done, makes these incredibly comfortable, comforting rather promises to me directly. And, you know, I can just kind of keep flipping pages, right? And just be like, okay, what's next? You know, and how many of us miss out on opportunities daily to share the amazing news of the gospel with someone because we don't think it will make a difference. If you are a believer in Christ, the very same power and presence of God resides in you. This very same Holy Spirit resides in you now. Do you understand that? You know, as obvious and, and motivating as that fact should be for us, we need to repent of our spiritual dullness. We need to remind ourselves and one another of this fact daily. Okay. We were up here. Now we're down here. Um, but let's not wallow in our discouragement. Rather, let's take a look at what the Holy Spirit accomplished through a bunch of equally faithful, faithless rather, and dull um, people and be encouraged by what he can accomplish through us. All right, so one more time, back to verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, so empowered by the Spirit for their mission, the disciples start speaking in other tongues. Okay, what's going on here? Um, it's clear from the context that Luke isn't referring to them speaking um, in some sort of uh, unintelligible angelic dialect. Okay? He, rather, empowered by the Spirit, they begin to speak the languages of the surrounding nations. Right? And remember, this is the beginning of the Feast of Weeks, which means that devout Jews, who by now have been spread all over that part of the world, right, were gathering in Jerusalem to worship. Um, and Kalen did a great job reading off that diverse list of places that they had come from, uh, representing parts of Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa, right? And I, and I don't think that this list is meant to be exhaustive. I think it's meant to be representative. 
um, and it's meant to represent all the corners of the known world at that time. And so, the idea then is that the 120 disciples were empowered to speak in all the languages of the known world so that no one was excluded or exempt from hearing the gospel preached that day. And that obviously was an amazing event. And so we hear that the people are bewildered and amazed, right? And in a cosmopolitan city center, it's actually not that abnormal to encounter other cultures and other languages, right? But this kind of thing was totally unheard of. And to make it even more unbelievable, as we see in verse 7, the bulk of Jesus' followers are Galileans. All right, and, and the people of Galilee are not very highly regarded in the Jewish world at this time. Right? These were fishermen and farmers. They were not highly educated. They were thought of as uh, they were thought of as hicks and bumpkins and yokels. Um, they were unremarkable people. Right? They were the, the, the epitome of ordinary. And yet these ordinary unremarkable people were doing something truly extraordinary, right? And they drew the attention of the entire city because of it, right? So all eyes and ears were on them. And what did they say in all these different languages, right? Verse 11 tells us that we, uh, each of the people there, there rather heard them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. They were preaching the gospel, right? They were preaching the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one who came to seek and to save the lost, who poured out his blood for us. These Holy Spirit-empowered people, people exactly like you and me, they were telling the whole world how great our God is. And if you read on in the chapter, you see that 3,000 people convert to Christianity that day, and more and more and more are added daily in the weeks and months that follow as they're recorded. All right. I chose to end our text at verse 12 today because it ends with the people asking each other, what does this mean? Which is a really good question. What does it all mean? What uh, should we make of it? What should we take away from it? Well, a couple things. First, I would say that these events, um, these events are descriptive, not prescriptive. Right? I mentioned a while ago, earlier in the sermon, that I don't think the events of Pentecost are repeatable or replicable. Um, however, they do have uh, that do they do have important messages for us today. And so, what I mean. Uh, what I mean by that is that the implication of this passage, I don't think, is that we should all become street preachers, necessarily. Unless you feel the Spirit compelling you to do that, in which case you should follow His lead. Right? And I'm all for the churches gathering and praying for uh, a mighty work of spiritual renewal. Right? But, but we're missing the point if all we do is gather and wait for something to happen because something already did happen, 
right? That's what Pentecost is all about. What began happening at Pentecost is still happening now. You know, it's hard for us to see sometimes, and it's easy to get discouraged by a, a culture that doesn't seem to be too interested in what the church has to say, right? But the power and presence of the Holy Spirit is no less real in us today than it was in those first disciples 2,000 years ago. So ultimately, what we need to understand from this text is that the Holy Spirit is the power of the mission of the church and that there is no barrier or obstruction that can get between him and accomplishing his objective. Okay? His power at work in his people transcends all cultural differences, all language barriers, right? All worldviews, all tax brackets, all class distinctions. You know, while I was writing this sermon, uh, one of the songs that I had on loop was a song called Rattle by Elevation Worship. And it's a song that's based on Ezekiel 37, on that moment where uh, Ezekiel has prophesied to the dry bones and it's just quiet and he's waiting. He's waiting for something to happen. And then he begins to hear the sound of the bones rattling as they begin to assemble and uh, come back to life. Um, You know, it's not the kind of song that we would typically sing in church, but if you want an anthem to get you pumped up about the Holy Spirit's power, look no further. Um, And the verses repeatedly ask the rhetorical question of God, since when is, or since when has impossible ever stopped you? And they go on to list all of these um, incredible things throughout Scripture that prove God's, that nothing is impossible for God, right? That they prove His unbelievable power. And so think about it, right? Nothing is impossible for God. He saved me. He saved you. Do you honestly think that there's a person out there that He cannot save or that He's incapable of saving, right? He brings dead people back to life. It's nothing for God to be able to remove the hardest heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. So secondly, what we have to understand is that this story is still unfolding in that we are a part of it. Right? The mission that was launched in our text is the very same mission that we are engaged in today. As the church, right? To be a follower of Christ is to be called to the work of this mission. And GBC was planted with the desire to really embody that distinctive, right? And so we would do very well, both corporately and personally, to regularly reassess how we're doing on that front. Now, obviously, you might think that's unfair, given the bizarre nature of the last 13 months. And they certainly have disrupted uh, the rhythms of ministry, I guess, as we had become accustomed to. There's no question about it. And I confess that for myself, you know, it's all been a bit of a blur. Uh, You know, we began by just trying to reorient ourselves uh, and figure out how we were going to keep ministering to our own people. Um, You know, and it was a long, slow learning curve. And during that time, it kind of felt like at least the formal portion of the mission of the church kind of wound up taking a back seat for a season. And I know looking back now, uh, I recognize that I, I really was kind of, I, I had bought into the idea that we could just wait this out. 
you know, like, it'll just be a couple of weeks, and then we'll get back to normal. And then it was, oh, it'll just be a couple of months, and then we'll get back to normal. And then a year, and then who knows how long, <laughs> right? And the reality is that the mission of the church goes on, a virus or not, right? And our opportunities may look different, sure. And, and for one, there may be less corporate opportunities and more personal opportunities, but they are there, and they need to be engaged with. The need is as great now as it's ever been. All right. Some of you have uh, gospel conversations regularly. And God loves that. You know, well done, good and faithful servant. Keep it up. But others of us are surrounded by people every day that don't even know that we're believers. You know, and I, and I actually, I get that. I can relate to that. You know, by nature, I don't like confrontation. And I tend to prefer to blend into the scenery uh, whenever possible. But that's harder to do these days. Obviously, uh, in our work-obsessed culture, the first question you get asked when you meet someone new is, what do you do for work? And I happen to work at a church, so we break that ice pretty quick. Um, but to be honest, you know, a lot of times people don't know how fast to change the subject. And that can be awkward. But other times, it opens up a conversation. And so maybe for some of you, maybe, maybe the way to cross the threshold is just to ask somebody what they did on the weekend. And then if they politely reciprocate, you can say you went to church. And maybe that's the end of the conversation. Or maybe they ask you what that's all about. And a door opens, right? Now, that part's not up to you, so it doesn't matter. Um, maybe you're the kind of person who says, I don't have any non-believers in my life. You have a small circle. You work with Christians. You go to church with Christians. Your friends are Christians. Your family are Christians. There are plenty of ways to expose yourself to people who don't share your beliefs. Um, and, you know, maybe one of the best ways is to join yourself to one of the ministries that has figured out how to continue interacting with people through this pandemic, right? And we're still able to serve the vulnerable. So maybe join yourself to one of these ministries that is serving the homeless population downtown. You'll have no shortage of opportunities to have conversations with people. Maybe join yourself to save families as it's rolling out. Again, there's going to be plenty of opportunities to get to know new people and to interact with new people. Um, maybe you want to join and help out with uh, community dinners, right? In which case, you know, Kathy's a great person to talk to if you want to know what's involved there. There are plenty of opportunities, right? So yes, the specifics of the Pentecost may not be re repeatable or replicable, but the mission remains until Christ returns. Right? And he commanded us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you. The power and the presence of Jesus Christ are with you always to the end of the age. All right. The harvest is plentiful, 
Let's be about the work. Um, that's it. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love and mercy toward us. You have raised dead people like us to new life. And more than that, you have invited us and empowered us to participate in your great rescue plan for the world. Jesus, thank you for giving us the greatest news in the world to share. That you lived a life that we couldn't live for ourselves and that you died the sinner's death that we deserved. Your grace is more precious than we could ever imagine. Holy Spirit, thank you for breathing new life into us and carrying out your work in the world through ordinary and undeserving people like us. Open doors for us. Lead us. And give us words of life to speak into others. Amen.